Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I almost never interview politicians, not because I think they're all evil, but because we don't really reward or allow our politicians, good or bad, to be searching, to own their questions, or to change their minds and grow, to admit their human frailty. I'm intrigued by language Cory Booker uses about politics as work of manifesting love. And on the surface, his life arc is as impressive as they come. Stanford graduate, Rhodes Scholar, Mayor, United States Senator. So it's surprising to hear him say that the best thing that ever happened to him was being broken time and time again, especially in his formative years, witnessing segregation and abandonment in New Jersey's Harrington Park and Newark, learning from people like Miss Virginia Jones, a tenant organizer in the building in which Cory Booker lived while a law student and in which her son had been murdered. What we say about other people says more about who we are than who they are. And it was that moment when I first started in on Martin Luther King Boulevard with Miss Jones, where she checked me hard and she said, you know, describe the neighborhood. And I described it like I did to you, the drug dealing, the projects, the abandoned building. And she just said to me in a very curt way, boy, you need to understand that the world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people who only sees darkness, despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you see hope, opportunity, if you're stubborn enough to every time you open your eyes, see love and the face of God, then you can be a change agent here. Then you can make a difference. It was this monumental sort of moment for me at the beginning of my life that you have choices. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Cory Booker is a United States Senator for New Jersey. I am curious about how you would begin to talk about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. However, how are you think of that? Well, I, I'm happy that I had a uh, traditional grounding in my in, in a small black church in northern New Jersey, in a very sort of traditional framing. But you know, James Baldwin has a saying that children are never good at listening to their elders, uh, but they never fail to imitate them. Yes, and, and <laughs> yeah. I think so much of my <laughs> philosophy. Uh, grew out not from my parents' words, but how they encountered life. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a blessing in a sense to grow up uh, in a, this incredible town that uh, we were the first black family to move in. in of fact, Harrington Park, New Jersey. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And but but my parents' life up until sort of bringing me up in that town had so many stories around the kitchen table of things that were surprising to me as a boy growing up to hear such stories of awful bigotry and discrimination uh, and hatred. Yet my parents had this view of this sort of indefatigable love, love of people, love of this country that was really shaping to me about how you encounter darkness and what do you do, mm -hmm. how when you encounter uh, discouragement or defeat, what do you do? And those are building blocks I now realize as an older adult that are so um, fundamental to my f own personal philosophy and my sort of orienting to the world, to the universe, and to uh, religion. So I've been reading a lot of the things you've written, and 
But I, I don't know that I've just seen this question explored in this way, or, or I probably just have missed it. Like, you know, so where this orientation you have, this way you have a being in the world, moving through the world that you also that was so imprinted by your parents. At what point do you see the roots of that becoming something leading you into politics as a place to express that? I mean, you know, you've been talking about manifesting love. Like, when did this become the direction that you would take with that? Well, I, I think a lot of life is about confronting fear, which is a, such a controlling force. Mm. And it's a fear is often the ignition point for bigotry or hatred or conflict. And when it affects you on a personal level, I think it can be very um, stultifying. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have a life that was very different than my parents. You know, my, mm -hmm. my dad would tell me, you know, boy, don't walk around this house like you hit a triple. You were born on third base. Mm. And have parents that grew up in segregated environments and poverty and then gift to my brother and I a, a very different reality and then have that lead to college and graduate school and the like. Really, at the end of that road, I um, decided I would, as my mom would say, well, Corey, think about what you would do if you knew you couldn't fail despite your fears and insecurities. And, hmm. and it was that point in my life I made a decision to move into what is and was especially then a very dangerous neighborhood with the understanding that you know, as my father said, you know, you can't pay back all the blessings that were given to you in generations before, but you've got to pay it forward. And it was in this environment where I was following my wildest dream, which was to be like a man named Jeffrey Canada, who runs something mm, in Harlem. Mm -hmm. He was sort of the hero of mine coming out of law school. Okay. And how I thought I was going to organize my life, but like he did. In fact, if you read his great book, Fist, Stick, Knife, Gun, um, which talks a lot about fear and what that does, the corrupting force that it is but how he chose the toughest, a tough neighborhood in Harlem to begin just being of service, of a community. So did, did you read that what, while you were at law school? You, were at, you yes. were at Yale Law School, is that right? Yes, and I, I decided at Yale that I was going to go find who are the people that most inspire me. Uh -huh. And um, because if I'm trying to live my greatest life, go to the light, to the people that most um, excite me and inspire me and are doing the kind of things that most call to my spirit. And for me, I always found those people in the humblest of places, uh, in the in tough communities. And you know, I I loved uh, a book I read called *In Search of My Mother's Garden* by um, Alice Walker, where she mm -hmm. says mm -hmm. talks about it's a chapter where she's giving advice to revolutionaries, in this case, black revolutionaries. And she says the real revolutionary is always concerned with the least glamorous stuff, mm -hmm. the raising a child's reading level from third grade to fourth the filling out food stamp forms for folks because they have to eat revolution or not, the real revolutionary is always close enough to the people to be there for them when they're needed. Hmm. So you were commuting at some point from Newark to New Haven, which is not really a commute, right? Like it could be a three or four hour drive. Um, but it also strikes me that uh, it's not just that you chose Newark like um, – kind of a scientific choice. I mean, you, you've said that your father loved Newark. I feel like, you know, was was Harrington Park kind of part of Greater Newark? I, I was going to look this up, and then I, I thought I could just ask you. You know, Harrington Park is, a, is maybe 25, 30 miles away and mm -hmm. a world disconnected. It, okay. um, you know, uh, New Jersey has these very particularized communities that um, we're, most people don't realize we're one of the most segregated states in the nation. I think the data shows about the fifth most segregated state for blacks, the fourth most segregated state for Latinos. 
And Harrington Park literally took my parents and civil rights activists fighting and constructing a ruse for us to buy the house, having a white couple ultimately pose as them to overcome the real estate steering at the time. And so it was this incredible bedroom community that was so nurturing. The connection I had, though, was that my parents raising two African-American boys uh, in a white community, as my father jokingly called us, the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. (laughs) Um, My father and mother really wanted my brother and I to keep connections to black community uh, and a sort of a consciousness of struggle that comes from that, an unfinished American business that comes from that. So whether it was, you know, going to Newark for cultural events or black church or what have you, my father seemed to just indulge as a guy who his entire life was brought up in a segregated community. He, he found Newark, the sounds of Newark, this WBGO, the radio station, all of these things were, as I saw us driving around in a car with him, were sort of food for his soul and, and nurturing to him. So for me, I had a sort of a spiritual connection from family, friends that lived there to uh, visits there throughout my youth growing up. So I want to I want to talk kind of get more into Newark, but kind of want to pull back the lens and just ask you this large question because as you say, I mean, um, when you write about Newark and speak about it, there's this very particular love of particular people, right, and particular energy and place. Um, and then in another way, Newark is, is a microcosm of, as you said, um, dynamics that a lot of cities have gone through and are going through. I kept thinking, I was reading you tell stories from it about being in Youngstown, Ohio a couple of years ago and somebody saying to me, this is, this is a place that is dying and being reborn at the very same time, mm. which is very much the story of our time. It's the story of our institutions and our places. Um, so, so here's my question. Like if... If an alien landed in a spaceship and asked you to start telling the story of our time, how would you start to do that? Where, where would you begin? Well, I confess that my view of the universe, the world, comes from a very American perspective. Yeah. Uh, I've had the blessings now, especially as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, to travel the globe and see um, lots of different places. But my so much of my my view is colored by this story of America, which I do think is a story of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, we put ideals into this universe mm-hmm. and that are bigger than the humans that put them in. Remember, our founders couldn't help but write into the documents their bigotry and uh, their frailties. Right. I mean, bigger, they, bigger also than our capacity to anywhere near um, Achieve them, meet them. Yeah, if you Still. read the Declaration of Independence now, <laughs> yeah. you see you see the Native Americans are referred to as savages, yeah. and women are clearly, uh, by their omission, a second class citizenry. Yeah. You know, Stokely Carmichael. I love how he used to always say "constitute, constitute." I can only say three fifths of the word. Mm-hmm. The early suffragettes, the early uh, labor organizers, the early uh, abolitionists would never live to see the harvest that they. Uh, made possible, but still seem to have this undying belief manifested through hopeful action to make real on the promise of this country. And so that's sort of the story that I like to tell, which is that the, the story of this nation is really a story of an evolution of spirit that more and more people were believing in things that now we take for granted, but back in the day they seemed with not even within our grasp. 
Um, and and but right now, and I just mean globally, right? Not just. I mean, there are manifestations of this in the states, but it's such a mixed bag in terms of uh, uh, soaring aspiration and soaring creativity, and also the opposite of those things. Um, you know, I like the image that uh, I actually got from some technologists and evolutionary biologists that like that, that a picture of the globe right now would look like the teenage brain, right. which is on the one hand like full of this like unbelievable energy and potential and creativity and also at the very same time, all at the same time, just like recklessness and this capacity yes. for self-destruction. Um yeah, and so you know, I was so I'm I was reading this article, which I know you have strong feelings about, uh, that was in Esquire about you. Um, but it's like it's one way to tell the story, right? And in fact, it is a is a dominant narrative, right? I mean, this Esquire piece talked about you moving to Brick Towers in Newark and said and called that one of Newark's nastiest human warehouses, right? And so then there's this there's these these senses, lousy housing check, rampant unemployment, you bet, shitty schools, bingo, gang warfare, my yes. I leave Newark and feel nothing this is the journalist, and feel nothing except happy that I don't live there. A state of spiritual and moral zombiehood that belies all lip service however heartfelt. Yeah, so I was like, so let's say that Alien had read that article. Right. <laughs> you know, like, how do you tell the story of what you see and what you know and what you've experienced and these people you love and the healing that is also happening alongside the devastation? And how does that all work together with this other way that this can be seen? Well, I question people a lot about what we say about other people yeah. says more about who we are yeah. than who they are. Yeah. And it was that moment when I first started in on Martin Luther King Boulevard with Miss Jones where she checked me hard and she said, you know, describe the neighborhood. And I described it like I did to you, the drug dealing, the projects, the abandoned building. And she just said to me in a very curt way, boy, you need to understand that the world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people who only sees darkness, despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you see hope, opportunity, if you're stubborn enough to every time you open your eyes see love and the face of God, then you can be a change agent here. Then you can make a difference. Yeah. And it was this monumental sort of moment for me at the beginning of my life that, you know, you have choices. Your life is not just a, a stimulus response. That that space between stimulus and response, y you can make powerful choices. And and even in the way you describe a, a person, a, describe a child, you can yeah. see them as a collection of their inhibiting agents, toxic soil like we have in Newark, toxic air like we have in Newark and so many other cities where people think Flint, Michigan is an anomaly. It's not. There's yeah. like 3,000 jurisdictions with twice the blood lead levels, asthma rates for urban areas off the charts, kids growing up in toxic environments. You can, I could go through all the maladies and describe the children as a collection of those, or I can see their divinity and see their potential. And what the folks I fell in love with in Newark and I've always found, this year has shown me this about our country as a whole, that it's often during the darkest times or in the darkest places, that if you look with not a cynical eye, which is a spiritually toxic state, cynicism, but if you see with the hopeful eye, which is a choice, um, which is a muscle, hope, uh, you can actually start to discern incredible light. And that's what I found 
in this neighborhood that I still live in. But as you know, as you know, journalism as a craft, and I'm, you know, I'm in this world, um, is about, is very sophisticated about analyzing what is failing and what is flawed yes. and what is catastrophic, right? And uncovering uh, corruption and devastation. Um, and that also, as we're learning, is what rivets our brains. So, um, and in a sense, I also feel that politics, um, it's, it's more about the darkness and, than about the light. Uh, and um, so, I mean, how do you, like, how do you work with that, right? I mean, how, or how do you offer up for citizens to be working with that? Um, and taking what's going right as seriously as we take what goes wrong. Right, we just have well, these impulses now, these reflexes. Yeah. I just think, and, and and one of my favorite books um, ever is "The Fire Next Time" by mm-hmm. James Baldwin, yeah. which is a painful, painful analysis of what's going on in America in the 1960s. But then he ends this book with these two pages that are that he actually got criticized. They called him Pollyannish. <laughs> Here is Baldwin who just talked about these fissures in our society that ends this book by calling to blacks and whites to be like lovers, he writes, and to insist upon and create a new consciousness that he goes, human history is, and black American history, Negro American history is in particular, a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. And, And this is what I operate on every single day. I am the physical manifestation of these individual choices that were made by so many people um, to, to choose light over darkness. And so I, I know that cynicism, especially in politics, um, a, a senior New Jersey politician once said to me, before I was in politics, if I helped an elderly woman across the street, I was a good person. Now that I'm in politics, I'm just trying to get her vote. Right. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Senator Cory Booker. He's also the author of a book, United, Thoughts on Finding Common Ground and Advancing the Common Good. One of the things you do in there is you you call out people who have been your teachers, people you honor, as you say, and there's you say to honor someone is not just about venerating them, it's about learning from them. Um, so Virginia Jones is one of those people. And another person, I, I do want to like come to the L word, love, which you keep using and which I feel is really surfacing in our life together. Again, like it's such an interesting contrast to that narrative of anger um, and dismay. Um, another teacher you point out is Frank Hutchins, who yes. worked with the Greater Newark HUD Tenants Coalition and... One thing you say about Frank Hutchins um, is he loved people. He saw people. Use that word of seeing people. So talk a little bit about what you learn, like how that quality of seeing people makes a difference. Yeah, my early days as an activist, I felt like I was in such a hurry. And as a lawyer and seeing these slumlords in Newark, and I just wanted to get to the conclusion of fixing things, you know, like – get the guy to fix the heat. 
Um, but Frank was really one of those people that taught me to slow down, um, to stop, to, to look a person in the eye, to feel their heart beating with the same blood, to recognize their their divinity, to see their light, um, even if they're screaming at you, um, mm-hmm. to, to think and to repeat in your own heart and mind, I love you. That is the test of love. I mean, it is so easy to love people who agree with you, but the real test comes to, to love someone who who you disagree with. And our political culture right now has become so toxic. I, I Chris Christie, who is a friend of mine, my governor, uh, who I disagree with vociferous. I could write a dissertation on our disagreements. <laughs> and I remember telling him that I watched the presidential debates when he was standing with all these other Republicans, and they were castigating him for the sin of hugging Barack Obama. And that hug happened at the yeah. during our Hurricane Sandy, where the Air Force One flew in. The, the governor is, who's wept with other residents. And, and here you have the president descending the steps and the two guys hug. And I'm a hugger. And by the way, it wasn't even a great hug. It was one of these <laughs> awkward male hugs, you know, where you're not right. sure what to do with your hands. Um, but, but they were castigating him for the sin of hugging someone. So when I hugged John McCain, when he came to the Senate floor, when we didn't know how he was going to vote on health care and, and people's lives were potentially in the balance. He had a cancer designation. He came back to the mm-hmm. Senate floor and I hugged him. And by the time I got home that night, I was getting pilloried on Twitter by fellow progressives for hugging a man. They said that was a baby killer or things like that. If we have lost the point where we can't even see the humanity in someone else, we've so demonized them that physical contact, then there's no hope for us as a country. Then there's no way we can come together and work together and find common ground. That this country will be torn left or right and, and forget about the urgency of, of, of forward progress. And so I I get criticism for talking about love in the political space. Do you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, even from one of my close friends, I gave a speech um, who just said to me, you know, you need to sound tougher and you need to sound. And, and the way I talk about love, I, I mean, the kind of love I'm talking about is the love of freedom riders, the love of these young teenage boys who storm beaches in Normandy. Uh, I mean, it's the hard love. It's the difficult love. Uh, it's not an easy way. Um, it's hurtful. And love does get angry. And this is a time where our country needs a more courageous love, needs a more daring empathy. This is really a moment where we're going to define our culture, I think, in the next generation. Mm. And that word sacred to me is is what is needed now, this sort of understanding that these are sacred spaces between us and they need to be fueled and, in, and injected with an unapologetic, courageous, daring uh, love. You know, I want to – Frank Hutchins, again, one of the things you said about him, about what you learned from him – is that in this quality of seeing people and loving people and that being non-negotiable, right, in any circumstance, that he was fighting against the common notion of tolerance, which many generations now since the 60s have grown up with. And, you know, maybe it was a baby step, right? But you said what we have to do is move beyond tolerance to love. So, you know, to me, this is in the category of this idea of evolution, of this spiritual evolution, civic spiritual evolution. I mean, talk about that, about what it is we've been working with, the limitations of tolerance, again, and like how that anchors what it means for love to be a public thing. 
Right. I, I, I sort of rankle it when people begin have, and I've seen this evolve over my lifetime, where, where um, people sort of herald this idea that we are a nation of tolerance. Yeah, it's just so and, small. And it, I'm like, that, God, that is, that is a cynical state of mind that that's mm. what we're just going to stomach each other's right to be different. Mm. And, if, and, and basically tolerance says if you disappear from this face of this earth, I'm no better or worse off because I was just tolerating you mm. like I tolerate a cold. And what tolerance says is I'm just stomaching your right, but love says I see your worth I see your value and understanding that the, this ideal of rugged individualism and self-reliance, rugged individualism didn't map the human genome, rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon, and you can't love your country without loving your country men and women. When we manifest that kind of patriotism, that kind of civic love, um, that's when we do things that light up the world, that light up the planet Earth. That rugged individualism also infuses how we do social change, even how we do social healing, right? I mean, even when you become the young mayor of Newark, you know, people start calling you the savior of Newark, right? Yeah. We're always looking oh. for the hero. And I suppose that's also probably primally, you know, I mean, somehow we're hardwired for that. But one of the things I that's interesting to me and in, in a lot of your writing and and some of the interviews you've been giving lately is that you, I don't know if you use this word embarrassed, but like, you know, that you're, you have all the, all the great right credentials at this point in your life, right? right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Stanford, Yale, um, Oxford, uh, mayor, senator. Um, but that that doesn't tell the story of the most meaningful things that have happened, the things that have formed you. Um, but we do that, right? That's that's also how we approach social change uh, with a lot of pedestals and with these kind of metrics and looking for what is accomplished and what is solved. And I suppose, you know, becoming a senator, um, you know, you just, you keep taking yourself into more and more places where where that is the way people see you and expect of you and also see the world. I wonder how you work with that. I mean, it's 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 uncomfortable for me because I I tend to see things um, from the, through the eyes of the people that live in my community, and you know I w I wish we were doing this interview as we were walking around Newark, and you could see how people razz me and don't see uh, any you know title or external uh, often things that we seem to revere that have nothing to do with the truth of a person or what's important to them, and I fear that. We're still struggling with Ralph Ellison's invisible man problem. In this sense, we, we render so many of our fellow Americans invisible and fail to see uh, the truth of the matter. Because uh, we're looking for heroes in a certain of a certain. We, we lionize the wrong things yeah. and are, are failing to sort of understand the wealth of who we are because we use all the wrong metrics to measure wealth. And uh, it, it's troublesome to me in this invisibility. I think it makes problems fester and weakens us as a whole. And for us to look out for a savior and expect someone to save us or someone to rectify this problem, it forgets those like cute little 10 two-letter words that I learned as a child, which are simply, if it is to be, it is up to me. And in many ways, the political leaders were the last people to move. 
You know, the saying that's almost tired down here in D.C., which is that change doesn't come from Washington. Yeah. It comes to Washington. After a short break, more conversation with Senator Cory Booker. Subscribe to On Being on Apple Podcasts. There you can listen again, receive occasional extras, and discover produced and unedited versions of everything we create. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with United States Senator Cory Booker. You know, I don't, I don't interview politicians. Um, I don't interview sitting politicians. Um, so congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think, like, I think maybe in the early, early years I did, I, I interviewed Jack Danforth, Senator John Danforth, but not when, you know, after he was in the Senate. And I think I interviewed people in the early years when we were under pressure to be more newsy. Uh, and But the reason I don't do it is it's not because I think um, politicians aren't necessary or, you know, or evil or shallow, but because I don't think politicians are in a position where they feel like they can have a revelatory searching conversation or also not just admit imperfection or frailty, but we don't let people change or change their minds or say, I was wrong about that. Whereas in we know in life, like, you know, the, the only people worth knowing, the wise people in our lives, we've seen them evolve. Um, I experience you as somebody who is searching as a human being. I, I wonder, um, maybe you are part of a new generation, which is true across our society now. We're having to remake all these old forms. I mean, how, how do you live with in this thing we've done to the profession you've chosen? Well, I, I, so first of all, I hope you're right about our evolving politics. I really hope that we, we are going to see more vulnerability in our politics, that we're going to see more people willing to talk about their own evolution. I, I mean, I just do hope that, that those dialogue does come. I don't know. We're in such a new political space where you're seeing the fracturing of the news media, snippets and tweets and sound bites um, uh, and, and memes. Uh, I, I don't know how this space is all going to uh, sort of settle out, but I do know there, there are mediums that I'm enjoying that weren't here five or ten years ago. This being one of them, podcast. Yeah. But but the thing, uh, the the best thing for this happened to me, has been being uh, broken time and time again. My Newark years. Every time I thought I was getting a stride or a swagger, um, something would just happen that would break me or humiliate me or were were somehow, it was a city that would bring out my weaknesses. And my fears, and then give me a chance to to grow and 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 transform them into strengths. And um, where people now that they've known me for twenty years uh, can get in my face with a with a 
constructiveness, not all, often a <laughs> elegance, but at least a constructiveness that's really grateful. And, and if I think about the time, even since I've been a senator, where I've said the thing that my politicians who are on my team wish I didn't say, you know, I can think of responses at moments to interviews. I still remember when uh, an interviewer asked me if I was gay and, and I just said that what was in my heart, which why does that matter? Mm -hmm. And could challenge them and say, I, I hope nobody's voting for me because they think I'm straight. Um, uh, or after Donald Trump uh, tweeted his first mean tweet at me and Chris Cuomo <laughs> said to me, uh, set it up, like, how do you respond? And I've even seen this used against me by progressives where I said, uh, or, or taken out of context where they just put the first part where I just say, you know, what's my response to Donald Trump? Donald Trump, I love you. I don't want you to be my president, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to make you make me hate you. And mm -hmm. uh, we're all just trying to get this right. We're all, we all know that those feelings that we've, that I've had, that Newark has gifted me were, you know, when you get into a shower and you're hurting so much on the inside that you turn the water as hot as you possibly can, hoping that the pain on the outside distracts you from your heartbreak and agony. Or when you define courage, not as the big speech or the big campaign, but just that voice that somehow gets you out of bed after a day of pain or shame um, or embarrassment. And somehow you have the courage just to get up, put your clothes on and face a new day. And King does not inspire me because of his highest heights. He inspires me because he struggled as a family man. He struggled with his own personal weaknesses. Yeah. No, and um, that's it's true of all the, it's true of every single person we call a saint or put up yes. on a pedestal. Yes. Mother Teresa was depressed, right? Yes. That makes her more inspiring. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, one of the things you've said, which, which feels consonant to me with your with your personality and your drive, because you are driven, right? And that is also what makes you a good politician. You said, you know, this is, you know, you very, you rarely, in what I've seen, confess to being frustrated with people. But you say you're frustrated when you see how difficult it is to get people to take relatively simple steps proven to make a difference. And you're saying, I'm not asking them to take a freedom ride or march against club and gas wielding state troopers, but or storm beaches in Normandy, but to take small, increased steps of service. Um, that along with others doing the same could make a significant difference. And and I think um, something that I keep thinking about as I read you and hear you also is um, having a sense of like how change ripples and how long change takes, like the arc of change as opposed to... Uh, well, you know, there and, 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 and this is a very American thing too, and you're a very American person. Like there's a line... Uh, in your book, in my first year in office, I was achieving little of the transformative change I sought, which is an American way to think about it. Yes. Um, I mean, how could it not? I got elected. The world's supposed to change. Right. And I've been here a year. <laughs> um, because that also, that I think one thing we're seeing now is how vast the challenges are. And so there's all this progress made 50 years ago in civil rights and then some of us, not all of us, some of us have been living with the reality of that unfinished change for a long time. Some of us are just waking up to it. And that also makes people despair, like how much is not there yet. Right. Well, well, Mother Teresa, you know this quote by her when she was asked by a journalist, how does she measure success? And she says, you know, I wasn't called to be successful. I was called to be faithful. Yeah. And I worry about a, a lack of faithfulness, which 
in myself has been shaken, has fallen, um, where I've lost faith. And faithfulness is not just a spiritual way of being. It's it's getting up and continuing the work, even if you can't see um, to how that work will will change this almost seemingly impossible reality. And, and I worry about the lack of faithfulness in this country's ideals. And again, I confess to you this imperfection where a part of me, yeah, I'm rejoicing in all the organizing and marching that's going on now under this president. But the part where I, 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 I can't help but sometimes get angry, and I confess to that, was, wait a minute, under President Obama, hmm. we had environmental toxins uh, that were I've been to places that would bring tears to your eyes to see the injustice people are living under. Uh, under President Obama, we had a reality where a criminal justice system was shackling pregnant women, the murders going on of transgender women. I could go through the injustices and how rampant they were uh, uh, in our country under our former president. We had gotten to, and I'll use that word again, to a level of tolerance right, of, of right. levels of injustice. That should never be the case. So when when people ask you when you say things like that, and um, uh, you know, I imagine some of them, one will say um, in a, like in a civic forum, maybe not a journalistic forum, but like, okay, so how do I begin? Right? What do I do? What do you say? I, I say one act, one small act. Um, if you do the things, same things you did last year, and you expect there to be a different America this year, you're wrong. And even and I usually t- give people the the deference of saying, I know we all worked hard in 2016, but if we think change is going to happen, if we do the same things in 2018 that we did in 2016, you're fooling yourself. But but it doesn't have to be a grand change. We know those people who know aeronautics, one small course correction, a minute course correction over a period of time creates a dramatic change in outcome mm. and destination. Mm. And I've learned that as for all the children that I mentor that I'll be taking to see you know, movies like Black Panther, they have changed my life more than I've changed theirs. They, I, my balance sheet is way out of whack for the more I've tried to give and, and what I've received from it. And so I always say, do something different in your life, no matter how small it is. Mm-hmm. My dad got to where he is right now because someone who was not his family member uh, took him in and took him under their arm, under their wing. And so that that's the thing that, that again, we can never underestimate this truth that no matter who you are, the biggest thing you do in any day is most often going to be a small act of kindness, decency, or love. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Senator Cory Booker. curious about how you sustain your faithfulness um, very practically. I mean, like, you know, I see you on Twitter. I'm on Twitter less than I used to be. I, um, I remember I was reading a, a journalist uh, writing about you a couple years ago. He tweets with something approaching the frequency of his own heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, and, and um, clearly you're a person you know, gifted with a, a great deal of energy and, as you say, a lot of, you know, gifts that you take seriously. But how do you, you know, how do you stay whole and how do you renew this energy and renew what you call your faithfulness? 
Well, I, I try to, 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 and especially more conscious the older I get, um, to, to engage in spiritual practice that gives me renewal. And so I'll wake up in the morning and I will meditate. And um, the fundamental pillars of my morning routine that make me feel great during the day, I know what they are. They involve exercise. They involve meditation. They involve study of something not what my staff gives me to read for such yeah. a hearing. So, like, what are you studying these days? Or what have you recently been reading or um, learning from? Well, there's two things. Mm -hmm. One, I'm studying for, for practical purposes. Every morning now, I put in at least 10 minutes of Spanish study okay. <laughs> because it opens up what I love most, which is ultimately the thing that keeps me going, is human connection. Hmm. To be able to talk to somebody in their language, that, hmm. that line of, that spiritual line of connection, when you can ha have that kind of connection, something that it fortifies me. I really like that, learning Spanish as a spiritual practice. Yes. That's good. Um, I find in the morning, I started a new spiritual practice this year that you're going to laugh because it doesn't sound like a spiritual practice, but it's been such a gift to me. And I actually learned it from listening to a podcast to try it, but I make my bed in the morning now, which is something my mom, if, if she's <laughs> listening to this, will, 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 my mom has this saying where she says, behind every successful child is an astonished parent. And, uh, and she, Okay. So how is making your bed a spiritual practice? Well, first of all. <laughs> My mom is astonished with me because she's like, you're a United States senator. I couldn't get you to mow the lawn, make your bed, <laughs> clean your room. Um, but why is, why is making your bed a spiritual practice? It's because life is often about little bits of momentum. And so when I can get up in the morning, make my bed, sit in meditation, do a little bit of study, get an exercise in, and that's when I open the door to the world and go mm -hmm. out with certain pillars like that, I feel more momentum at my back, more energy, more sense of, it's small, but more sense of, which we all need uh, senses of self-worth, things that are, give our self-esteem more of a better foundation. And look, and I have to say this, stopping practices that used to erode my uh, self-esteem. I am one of those emotional eaters, you know? But yeah, you talked bed, about that, yeah. Yeah, it's been my one of my addictions in life. Uh, when you go to bed, when you come home feeling bad and you do things that in some ways compound that. I used to joke, that when I'd have a tough day being mayor, I would go home and to a sensual embrace, uh, a menage a trois, so to speak, with uh, with Ben and Jerry, and <laughs> and, uh, and and uh, you know, but uh, two pints in, and it's nice how they make them in convenient serving size containers. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, my self esteem would crash. I would feel horrible with these. I'm now a vegan, but back then, with the, what the, all that lactose does to your system. Um, and so, you know, that's why I say the wisdom of age, um, that to do the things that add to your self-esteem, add to your self-worth, and often they're very small, but that self-care in a world that is going to do everything it can to do two things to you in the day. One, bombard you with anxiety, and the other one is distract you. This world is so eloquently designed to distract you from your life mission. You know, life is not just about getting into the river and getting caught in the current, yeah, current events. Except you never, I mean, you've lived long enough now to know that you can decide where you're going and and you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to revisit that and see that you went someplace else, not in the not too distant future. Right, right. So right. I, um, I think we just we just have a few more minutes here. I, I, d I did want to say, I meant to say, so we, I, I think circling back to love is, is, is makes sense. Um, I experience that word to be surfacing everywhere and I experience people to be using that word. And, you know, claiming it in very unexpected places. But I also just feel like it's everywhere and it's very interesting and 
and as much as you know, you can also say that ours is an age of anger. Like I wonder if when when people look back a hundred years, you know, will this will this will the 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 resurrection of the L word or like us claiming this as a species, will this be something that is being seeded now that can be seen? I I hope so. When I did the book tour in twenty sixteen for United. Um, it was the thing that most people came up to me and talked to me about after a discussion on a stage yeah. was that this is what they're yearning for yeah. and, and a sense of connection to other Americans that transcends things that seem to be dividing us, a sense of yearning in this country for an understanding that we're all in this together. There's themes of love that I, I've now gotten to the point where I'm just uh, going to be unapologetic about it. I don't know if it's a good political strategy, but mm-hmm. I believe that this um, that this this shift from a country that aspires to tolerance to back to a country that aspires towards love is a defining moment in our country and our culture, and at a time of rampant demonization in our political speech, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that this might be the the time where we see a renewal of. I, I hope what I think is best about this country. Well, and don't you think that the demonization that has become, you know, kind of routine, like it's in the fabric of uh, many of our spaces, and the fact that we have actually named and called out hate and honor it and take it really seriously, right? I mean, honor it in terms of taking it seriously. Don't you think, that to me, that's what opens up this space where uh, you have to talk about something that is as big? Yeah, yes. Uh, Um. So look, Shiva, as you know, I've studied a bit of Hinduism, uh, the god of destruction, is a revered god because it's after that destruction that a new growth and a, a new seeds of endless, limitless potential come forward. And I, I think we're in a, a Shiva-like time right now where things are getting bad and getting dark and where, where hatred is being exposed and revealed in a more raw form. And I, my faith traditions, at least, and, and my faith perspective, make me believe that this tough years that we have ahead of us, I really do believe that they might be the the opportunity might lie within that for a renewal of the best of sort of a, a new civic gospel hmm. and a gospel of love that will come into our public life. And I don't mean that just by from politicians. I mean our public life, all of us, and how we're relating to each other within this society. Um. I want to, um, there's this beautiful paragraph you wrote about Virginia Jones, um, her, how you understood her definition of hope. You said, for Mrs. Jones, hope was relational. It didn't exist in the abstract. Hope confronts. It does not ignore pain, agony, or injustice. It is not a saccharine optimism that refuses to see, face, or grapple with the wretchedness of reality. You can't have active hope without despair because hope is a response. Hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. I want to ask you like right now, you know, today, this week, not, not in big lofty terms, but very concretely, like what makes you despair and where are you finding hope? You know, the, the new job I have has taken me to visit places in America that um, that I, I I didn't even know about. I almost feel ashamed that I didn't know about it. In a hearing today with the head of a hog producing company, I talked to him about this African-American community in North Carolina and, and Duplin County that um, just are suffering from respiratory diseases, the value of their land, 
has gone down. They've been in the, uh, just awful. They can't open their windows or run their air conditioning. Um, that we put so many hurt people uh, in, in environments to just compound the pain and the mm-hmm. injury um, that don't reflect who we are. And all of these things make me despair, make me angry, make my heart weep. Um, but yet we are people, as Ms. Jones would, would teach me, a woman that had her son murdered in the lobby of the building in which I would eventually live, who never left those buildings, was the first one of the first families to move in. And she and I were through the last people to live before they were imploded. Um, she was a person that always made that decision that despite how awful and agonizing life can be to you, despite how much it can break you, it's at those moments I will not only choose hope, but be an instrument of hope. And and that's the only salvation um, that we've ever had in this country is ordinary Americans under the worst circumstances, despairing circumstances, worse than I'll ever experience or witness who've decided to choose hope, to be agents of hope. Cory Booker is a senator for New Jersey and the former mayor of Newark, where he lives. He serves the U.S. Senate Committees on Foreign Relations, Environment and Public Works, and the Judiciary. He's the author of United, Thoughts on Finding Common Ground and Advancing the Common Good. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Kaspatek Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Damon Lee, and Jeffrey Basoy. Special thanks this week to Brent Bachman. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.